Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here at Christchurch and, and in this extremely attractive lecture hall. I'm, I'm beginning to get lecture hall envy. I think it's rather nicer than ours at St. Anthony's. I hope you can all hear me at the back. A hundred years ago today, Europe was at peace. It had been a long and generally very peaceful century, a century unusual in Europe's rather bloody history, a century of peace, relative peace, but pretty much a long period of peace, a century of extraordinary prosperity and social change, a century in which people had got used to the transformation of their lives in many ways, and a century which they assumed was going to continue with its peaceful prosperity on into the next century. Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, writing his memoirs later after the war was over, said, in the early months of 1914, the international sky seemed clearer than it had been. The Balkan clouds had disappeared. After the threatening periods of 1911, 1912, and 1913, a little calm was probable, and it would seem due. Well, we know what happened. A year later, following January of 1915, Europe was at war, a large-scale war, a war that was going to, had already become a world war. On the Western Front, there was stalemate, battles on the Eastern Front, and in the South had not bought, brought any very clear victory. The losses of lives were already beyond what most people had imagined were possible. And again, you probably all know some of the stories. The French high school class, all the young men who enlisted in August 1914 to fight for France, and by Christmas not one of them was alive. The losses in those opening battles of the First World War were in fact some of the heaviest of the war, and they were going to go on. We don't know what the full tally is of the costs of the 1914-18 war. Eight million dead, possibly more, because the records, particularly on the Eastern Front, were not kept for obvious reasons very accurately. Twice as many casualties, those who were wounded or were taken prisoner or who were missing, never to be found. And the costs of that war were not just in human lives. There were tremendous costs to the nations that fought them. And Europe itself suffered I think, a wound which it really has never recovered from. If you think of what Europe was like before 1914, if you think of the power of Europe, the progress of Europe, you think of the ways in which Europe dominated the world through direct empire, through trade, through investment. European science and technology was in the forefront of world science and technology. Uh, European military power was the greatest power that the world at the time knew. And you look at what happened to Europe as a result of that war. It began the process of Europe's decline from its preeminent position in the world. It led to huge changes on the maps, the disappearance of empires, which in many cases had lasted for centuries. The Ottoman Empire disappeared shortly after the war ended. The Austro-Hungarian Empire disappeared before the war had ended. The German Empire f fell to pieces and Germany lost its non-German-speaking territories. And in Russia, both an empire and a regime ended. And a new type of political organization, new form of social and political organization appeared in Bolshevism. The war left a legacy of violence and cynicism. And I think you can see it in the politics of Europe between the wars, which were marked by increasing violence, increasing resort to assassination, increasing willingness of political forces to take their battles into the streets and to attack parliamentary or constitutional democracy. And perhaps the thing 
that we still remember about the end of the First World War is it didn't really seem to have settled anything very much. It had destroyed a great deal, but it did not bring <coughs> peace to Europe. And 20 years later, there was going to be another war, this time the Second World War. And what had been the Great War, the Great War became the First World War. The First World War, I think, continues to haunt us because of what it did to European society and what it meant for the world at large. And I think it also haunts us because we are still not clear about how it started. There's still no agreement among historians or among the public at large about how that war started. <laughs> this year, more books are coming out. My book was one that came out last year, along with a whole host of others. It's been estimated that in English alone, there's something like 30,000 books on the origins of the First World War, which gives an indication <laughs> of just how big the disputes are. And I, I predict, I think, historians don't like to predict the future, but I can predict with some confidence that 100 years from now, on the bicentenary of the First World War, there will be yet another raft of books arguing about how that war started and what it meant. Some people have <coughs> argued with David Lloyd George, and this is where I would disagree with him uh, deeply, that Europe slithered over the edge into war without really intending it, without really having any thought to what the consequences might be. I don't think Europeans went blindly into the war. I think many of them did not expect the nature of the war and expected it would be over quickly. But I think there were those who consciously thought that war was an instrument of state policy, who made decisions which they knew were leading Europe closer to war um, rather than away. And so what I'd like to do today is really look at two questions. Um, I'm not going to come up, I, I can tell you now, with any very clear answer at the end about how the war started. But what I want to do is give you a sense of the different things that came together in the summer of 1914 to make a war likely. I think one of the ways we can think of the events of the summer of 1914 is to think of a long period of a brewing storm with eruptions every so often, perhaps of thunder or rain or lightning. But what happens in the summer of 1914 is a perfect storm. A number of things coming, to go to coming together coincidentally and a number of decisions made by those who might have ridden out the storm which actually put Europe right into the middle of it. So there are two sorts of forces, I think, that have perhaps helped to explain why Europe reached this situation in the summer of 1914. What I want to do is look, first of all, at what I would consider the givens of the time. We can call them accidents, or we can call them simply things that happened to be there at the time. And part of what helped to make the situation in the summer of 1914 was what had been happening in Europe up to this point. Not so much the decisions of individuals or the policies of individuals, I'll come to those in a moment, but the sorts of things that had been changing Europe. In many ways, Europe's very successes helped to lead to the final catastrophe. The Europeans took considerable pride in their progress, in the way in which they'd advanced. And for many Europeans, that progress meant that they had, advanced, they had advanced beyond war, that war was no longer something they did, that war was something that less civilized people did, but that Europeans in the 20th century did not do. You could see that confidence at the Paris Exposition of 1900, for example, where many of the exhibits were devoted to the tremendous progress that Europe had made, uh, a palace of electricity surmounted by a goddess of electricity, or rather a fairy of electricity who was picked out in light bulbs every night. Um, one Italian artist, the futurist Bayer, was so impressed with the palace of electricity that he named his daughters after some of the exhibits he'd seen there. And so one daughter was called Light, one was called Electricity, and one was called Propeller. <laughs> 
It sounds, it sounds a bit better in Italian, uh, <laughs> but not necessarily that much. Um, what you had, though, at the Paris Exposition was hints of some of the tensions that were troubling Europe, um, not so far under the surface, and hints of the tremendous progress in making not just the instruments of peace, but in making the instruments of war. Among the exhibitions was a Maxim Gun exhibition, a um, small pavilion devoted entirely to, to the new machine gun. There was also an exhibition by the great German armaments firm of Krupp. And so there were even hints at the Paris Exposition of some of the other sides of European progress. In a curious way too, I think, Europe's progress led to a sort of complacency, um, a sense that we don't need to worry about war because it's only something that happens in other parts of the world. And so the very real peril of war at home, I think, was not something that the Europeans or, or the European public perhaps took seriously enough. It was also a great period of globalization. And we tend always to think that what we're doing in our own age is something we've invented. But the period before 1914 was as great a period of globalization as the period that we have been living through in the last two decades. It was a time of tremendous expansion of communications, railways, steamships, telegraph, the beginning of, of wireless, um, the beginnings of air travel, um, the beginnings of the internal combustion engine, and Europe was linked together with the world in many different ways. It was a time of tremendous international trade and investment, time of tremendous movements of peoples. Literally millions of peoples were moving from one part of the world to another. Globalization, so people hoped at the time as they hoped today, would bring greater understanding among human beings, bring greater peace, and as also the, the advantages of sharing in prosperity. Yet in fact, it didn't always do that, and nor does it always do it today. What globalization can do, and it, it happens happening again today, is create those who lose from it. Not everyone benefits from globalization. Um, not everyone welcomes a more globalized world for various reasons. So what you got in Europe, as, as I think we're getting in parts of the world today, was a clinging to older identities, taking refuge in smaller identities. You began to get very active separatist movements throughout the Austro-Hungarian Empire, in the Balkans, and of course in Britain, where Irish home rule, Scottish home rule, and Welsh home rule became matters which, which aroused considerable popular passions. What globalization also did is make more possible the spread of ideologies which were hostile in various ways to continued peace and prosperity. Um, not so much religious in the period, uh, religious fundamentalisms in the period before 1914, but anarchism, um, increasing resort by those who felt that society was corrupt to terrorist means. There was a tremendous spate of terrorist activities throughout Europe and in North America and as far away as India in the period before 1914. An Italian king was assassinated, a Spanish king was assassinated, governors all over Russia were assassinated. The, Arch, uh, the Archduke, of course, Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated in Sarajevo. The Empress of Austria-Hungary was assassinated. A terrorist threw bombs onto the, onto the floor of the Paris Stock Exchange to show his contempt for capitalism. Another terrorist hurled a bomb into a cafe in Paris. He said, I don't care who I kill as long as I kill the bourgeoisie. Um, so you did get, I think, uh, an increased capacity for people to share in ideologies which span the world, much as you get increased capacity of people today to share in ideologies which may not bring peace but may bring the opposite. What globalization also did, um, unwittingly I think, was to create tensions among nations that should have been friends. Britain and Germany were each other's greatest trading partners before the First World War. 
and you could argue that this should have brought them closer, that they depended on each other for their economic prosperity. And, but what globalization did and what the expansion of trade did in the case of Britain and Germany is also create fears. Fears in Britain that Germany was overtaking it, was taking over British markets, and fears and resentments in Germany that Britain was not allowing German industry its fair share of the world's market, that the British were sitting on their empire and, and using tariff walls to keep out uh, German competition. In 1896, a best-selling British pamphlet called Made in Germany painted a very ominous picture. It said, a gigantic commercial state is arising to menace our prosperity and contend with us for the trade of the world. And the author urged his readers, whom he assumed I think must be men, he said, look around your households and you will see that your children are playing with toys made in Germany. Even lead soldiers made in Germany, your little boys are playing with. Your wife goes out in the evening. What does she go to listen to at the opera? German songs sung by German singers. And when you pick up the poker to poke the fire, as you're sitting there worrying about what your wife might be doing, listening to all this German music, the very poker you use was made in Essen or Dresden. And you got similar fears in Britain. Um, you got fears that Germany was an implacable rival. And of course, when, and this was in fact not accident but choice, when the German Kaiser Wilhelm II and his Minister of the Navy decided to start a naval race with Great Britain, which I'll get into in a minute, you also got fears of invasion. Before 1900, there were invasion stories, invasion novels, books about invasion, but before 1900 in Britain, the invader was always France. Uh, the French were the main enemy for the British, as they had been for centuries. Um, it was always assumed, one of my favorite ones, was that the French would invade on a weekend, which was extremely unsporting because all the British would be at their holidays or having their, having their dinner. And with the help of Irish nationalists, they would advance on London. The Irish nationalists apparently would cut the telegraph wires. And so the French, in this uh, rather illegitimate way, taking advantage of a peaceful weekend, would arrive in London and, and seize power before the British had realized what was happening. Um, once the Germans had started the naval race, German invasions replaced French invasions in the popular in, in the popular media. I mean, you probably many of you probably read *Riddle of the Sands*, which is about the possibility of a German invasion of Britain. And you got the Germans reciprocating. In Germany, there was fear that the British Navy was going to launch a sneak attack on the German Navy as it was developing. That the British would do what they had done at Copenhagen with Nelson and destroy. Um, the, the Danish fleet um, in the, during the Napoleonic Wars in a preemptive gesture. Uh, a new verb to Copenhagen entered the German language and this re reflected, I think, a very real fear. I think if we have a parallel today between two nations that in many ways are interdependent and which should be friends but where the tensions begin to, to become rather acute, I think we can think of the relationship between the United States and China. Um, both depending heavily on each other for trade and investment, yet that relationship is not an easy one and seems to be, if anything, becoming more difficult. Um, some have said if only the families, the ruling families of Europe, could have got together and spoken to each other, they could have avoided trouble. And I think anyone who's ever seen a family fight will know <laughs> that this is not um, what never was a reasonable hope. And even though there were very close relationships between the German and the British royal family or between the German, British and, and Russian royal families, those did not translate into better feelings. What happened, of course, is that those who married into the royal families in one country or another, such as the Tsarina Alexandra, who married Nicholas II, the future Nicholas II, um, German um, and half British princess, became fanatically Russian. Those who took on another country became, if anything, more, more vehement in their nationalism than those who had been born in that country. Um, and those who 
were rulers identified themselves with their own countries. And so you get, in fact, um, the family's not helping at all. What you also had in Europe, um, in addition to the unintended or the unforeseen consequences of globalization, which did not always lead to greater peace and stability, you also got a heightening of nationalism in the, 19th, in the course of the 19th century. And this, I think, was partly dependent on improved communications, which helped people to feel part of a larger unit, partly dependent on the spread of literacy, which made people more aware of a world outside their own immediate worlds, partly dependent on the fact that more and more people were moving into cities, much, much greater urbanization. And so people became more aware of themselves as being part of a larger unit, the nation. And I'm afraid that historians played a very malevolent role in this. Um, historians helped create national histories which tended to portray an eternal German nation or an eternal French nation or an eternal um, English or Scottish or Irish nation. Um, th they use this very convenient phrase of lost in the, lost in the mists of antiquities. Um, in the mists of antiquities, you can prove anything you want because nobody really knew what happened then. And this posited something called a German people that went right back to the Romans. And you got very learned people, very influential people like von Treitschke, writing books in which he said the German people have always been a noble and superior people, and they fought the Romans and they will fight their enemies today. So you get, I think, historians helping to create national myths and, and national, um, national ideas that people held about themselves. What historians also did, of course, was create pictures of the other. They created pictures of those who were on the other sides of the borders, and so you got German historians, for example, writing about the French as a people who have always been inimical to the Germans, who've always been hostile to the Germans, a people who don't share the values that Germans have, where the Germans are industrious, hardworking, God-fearing, the French are frivolous and idle and irreligious. Um, one of my favorite books written by a German professor in Berlin said to his readers, all over Paris, he said, you can see examples of French depravity and, and frivolity. And he said, I can tell you exactly where to go to see such examples. <laughs> And the French reciprocated, French learned professors. I mean, these were not cranks on, on the fringes. These were people with very respectable jobs in universities or writing for very respectable newspapers or journals. The French reciprocated with views of the Germans. The French particularly made play with what they call Prussianism because Prussia was the heart of the new German Confederation. And one book which I came across written by a, a French uh, political scientist said, you cannot expect the Prussians to have any moral sense because they live in a very flat landscape and there are no mountains to make them realize that there are differences in both morality and in geography. And so the Prussians lack any moral sense what, what, what whatsoever. Um, there are people who believe only in force. And this would not have mattered except what was happening at the same time as this nationalist fervor was growing. Of course, that more and more people were taking part in the political lives of, of their own societies. The spread of the franchise in Germany after Bismarck had done his reforms, the Reichstag was elected by universal male franchise. But even in countries such as Russia, after 1906, more and more people were actually taking part in public life, taking an interest in public life, um, beginning to vote. Lord Salisbury complained about it. A lot of the politicians complained about it because it really limited their freedom of action. They were now constrained by nationalist expectations or by lobby groups, lobby groups arguing for bigger navies or for bigger armies. Lord Salisbury, the British Prime Minister at the end of the 90s, said it's like having a huge lunatic asylum at one's back. But it was a huge lunatic asylum with which politicians increasingly <coughs> had to cope. Even in Russia, which we tend to think of an, as an autocracy, particularly after the revolutions and the, and the changes in the constitution of 1905-1906, you get 
the Russian leadership complaining that they have to be aware of public opinion, they cannot do exactly what they want. By 1914, the biggest newspaper in Moscow was selling 800,000 copies a day. So it gives you a sense that something really is changing in the European population. The European public are more engaged in what their countries are doing, but that also limits, in many ways, the options of those who lead them. In 1890, Helmut von Malke, the elder who was the um, presiding genius of the, of the German general staff when the wars of German unification <laughs> were fought, gave a very somber warning. It was one of the last speeches he made in the Reichstag. He said, the age of cabinet wars, where wars are determined by a small number of people in the national interest, is over. Um, such wars were for limited ends and they were easy to bring an end to once battles had been fought. He said, all we have now is people's war and any prudent government will hesitate to bring about a war of this nature with all its incalculable consequences. The great powers, he went on, will find it difficult to bring such wars to an end or admit defeat. Gentlemen, he said, it may be a war of seven years or of 30 years duration and woe to him who sets Europe alight who puts the first fire to the powder keg. And so there was a sense, even among those whose business was war, that something was changing in the environment of Europe and that there were these forces and pushing them perhaps in directions that they did not necessarily want to go. And this was fed by some very popular ideologies or, or intellectual fashions of the time, social Darwinism, the misapplication of Darwinian theories to human societies, which posited that human societies were every much a species as were species in the natural world. And so there was something called the English race, the German race, the Italian race. And this was deeply unscientific, but actually very persuasive at the time. And that could lead in a more specific direction. It could lead, if you believed that species were evolving like species in the natural world, rations were evolving like species in the natural world, it could lead to an assumption that war would soon be outmoded because human, human beings would, would no longer need it. But unfortunately, the general trend in those who accepted this social Darwinist analysis of, of societies was that war was part, a natural and inevitable part of how human societies behaved, and that the international arena was an anarchic arena in which nations struggled for survival. And again, misapplying Darwin, they took the phrase the survival of the fittest to mean that those nations which were prepared to fight for themselves and prepared to struggle were those that deserved to survive. And those that were not prepared to fight for themselves and not prepared to struggle did not um, and should not survive. And tied in with that, again taken from social Darwinism, but it also ties in with what some of the nationalist historians were writing, was the notion that most nations have hereditary enemies, just like most species do. They have natural enemies. And so you can do nothing about it. There are simply nations that are doomed to fight each other. So Teutons are doomed to fight Slavs, or the French are do doomed to fight Germans. Um, very, very dangerous thinking, which helped, I think, to repair Europe psychologically for war. There was also a fear among many that Europe's very prosperity was somehow weakening it. There was a lot of concern in the period before 1914 about degeneracy. In fact, a very popular book written by a Hungarian doctor was called Degeneracy and went through a number of editions. The basic sort of fear was that people were getting too soft. Yes, they were living longer, but were they as fit as their ancestors? And were the sorts of people who shouldn't be living longer, living and reproducing themselves. Um, this was the period in which you began to get um, the first stirrings 
of eugenics, which of course was then going to be totally discredited by the 1930s. In 1912, the first international eugenics conference was held in London. Eugenics was a movement which argued that you could breed human beings just as you bred dogs, horses, or, 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 or tried to get better tomatoes, that you could select, selectively breed people and that you should do so. Um, the first international eugenics conference was held in London at the Royal Albert Hall, and its patrons included Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, Winston Churchill, the first Lord of the Admiralty, and Charles Eliot, the president of Harvard University. So these were not just fringe ideas. These were ideas that really permeated a lot of the thinking in European society. And there were those, of course, who argued, usually those, I must say, in a, in a cynical spirit, um, those who, who argued that um, war, usually, usually those beyond military age, um, who argued that war was good, that a bit of healthy bloodletting was good, that it was a good thing for young men to go off and fight. Um, an article in the, Royal, the Journal of the Royal United Services Institute in 1898, which tended to contain articles written by colonels and generals, uh, people of higher ranks, said, is not war the grand scheme of nature by which degenerate, weak, or otherwise harmful states are eliminated from the, from the, from the concerted action of civilized nations and assimilated to those who are strong, vital, and beneficial in their influences. And you've got the same sorts of things written about individuals. Um, the leading German authority on tactics uh, wrote about the same period that the steadily increase in the st steadily in improving standards of living tend to increase the, the instinct of self-preservation and to diminish the instinct, the spirit of self-sacrifice. And what you are seeing, he warned, was the degeneracy of the race. People are getting softer, they're sleeping in beds that are too com comfortable, the water is too clean, they're not being toughened up um, by adverse circumstances. And so I think you do get, in a number of these intellectual currents and in the promotion and, and spread of nationalism, a propensity or a thinking, a way of thinking about war, that war is something natural, war is something perhaps even positively good. And you get another factor, which is always, I think, very difficult to explain, particularly in liberal democratic societies. And that is, for a lot of people, war remained glamorous. There was a fascination with mil things military in many countries, a fascination with uniforms. It's always striking to me when you look at photographs of many of the heads of state in Europe in the period before 1914, how many of them always appeared in military uniform. And it's very difficult to find a photograph of Wilhelm II of Germany, the Kaiser of Germany, wearing civilian clothes. He very rarely wore them. Um, very difficult to find the Tsar or the Archduke uh, Franz, Franz Joseph of Austria-Hungary wearing civilian clothes. And in countries such as France, of course, and Britain, um, civilian leaders did wear civilian clothes. But if you look at the spread or the propensity of European heads of state to wear uniform, I think it's very striking. And the military were admired. And you also got a feeling among younger people, younger men in particular, that the world had become rather dull. It had become rather bourgeois. It had become rather too comfortable. You, you got, not, not in all people, but in all young people, but you got among some a longing to have a bit of excitement to prove themselves. You got among young German men, for example, um, a number of younger German students saying, you know, we're tired of hearing from our uncles and our fathers and our grandfathers about how they fought in the wars of German unification. We would like a chance to prove ourselves as well. And you've got, of course, those like the futurist, um, Italian futurist Marinetti, who said war will destroy comfortable bourgeois society, bring it on. A war, he said, is the hygiene of civilization. Um, not surprisingly, he became a fascist in the 1920s. But this is not to be underestimated. I and mean, I think there were those who, after a long period of peace, didn't understand what war was and saw in war a sort of glamour. Now, having said that, 
I think one of the mistakes we always make about the First World War, and it's so easy to do, is to assume that because there were so many reasons there why it might have happened, it was bound to happen. And I don't think we should ever think that things are predetermined in history. And I think you can look in European society of the period before 1900 for all the forces pushing towards war. But what you can also find are a lot of forces pushing towards peace. I mean, there were many in Europe who supported peaceful means of settling disputes, who hoped that war was something very much of the past, who, who sincerely hoped that European civilization had moved to a point where war was obsolete. And you got those, of course, like Norman Angel, um, the, the very popular British journalist, arguing that war was simply economically unsound, that in modern warfare, no countries gain from war. True, he said, in the old days, you might gain something through conquest, you might gain um, property from your neighbors, you might gain food from your neighbors, but a modern war would be so destructive to all those fighting it and of course in that he was right, that nobody would gain. So much better to try and gain influence through peaceful means. If you want to get the assets of a country, buy them, use them, trade them, but you don't get it, you don't get, you don't get them and you won't have them if you resort to war. You also got huge movements, very, very important middle class movements, trying to find ways to settle disputes. There was tremendous international support for arbitration, for example. And really in this period you see the beginnings of, of the foundations of international law and some of the institutions that we have today, um, there was the growth of an international public opinion. And you began to get meetings of international NGOs, meetings of lawyers, for example, meetings of parliamentarians, who talked about ways in which they could try and remove the scourge of war from the world. Arbitration became increasingly popular as a way of settling disputes between nations. Between 1794, and 1914, 300 arbitrations were held. Now, you had to agree to go to arbitration um, if you were nations in dispute, but there were 300 arbitrations held between 1794 and 1914. More than half of those were held between 1890 and 1914. So I think you can see a real trend here among nations to try and resort to nonviolent means of settling their disputes. Increasingly also, nations began to use commissions of inquiry where there were disputes. And there was a famous dispute, which some of you may know about, between the British and the Russian Navy. Um, in 1905, the Russian Navy from the Baltic was going around the world to try and um, protect what was left of the Russian position in the Far East. And it was sailing through the North Sea just off Hull, and it sailed through some trawlers who were out catching fish, and, and they were stationary, they were gutting the fish on deck. And for some reason, the Russian admiral in charge decided that these trawlers were really Japanese torpedo boats which had somehow come all the way around the world and were lying in wait for the Russians. And so opened fire and actually sank one and killed a number of people. Um, the British press was absolutely enraged. The Daily Mail had a headline saying, drunk as usual, um, which, didn't, which didn't help to, to mend relations. But both sides eventually, after some talk of war, did in fact use a commission of inquiry and, and compensation was eventually paid. And of course, two large conferences, disarmament conferences, were held at The Hague in 1899 and 1907. They produced some limited agreements. They didn't live up to the hopes that others had of them, but they were, many thought, a step in the right direction. You also had a very substantial middle-class peace movement um, supported by people like Alfred Nobel, the explosive manufacturer, who was beginning to get a bit uneasy about what his explosives were being used for. And you got, had, of course, a huge working-class peace movement in the Second International. This was an organization of all the, uh, many, not all, but many of the working class movements and working class parties from around the world. And it met regularly 
And at its international congresses, it talked about what it would do if a war broke out between the capitalist nations. And there was wonderful rhetoric. Um, we will not fight in a capitalist war. We will find ways of stopping it. And of course, they could have stopped it because all the European armies, with the exception of the British, all the, all the armies of the major powers depended on conscription to develop, to, to, to create their armies. And so when a war came, um, the armies were instantly expanded by calling back those in the reserves. And so if the working classes and their supporters had refused to come when called, if they had gone on strike and refused to run the railways, if they'd refused to unload sh or load ships at the docks, if they'd refused to work in the armaments factories, it would have actually been impossible to fight a war. And there was wonderful rhetoric to this effect, we'll have a general strike, we won't fight in a war which will only benefit those in positions of power. But no concrete steps were ever taken, um, partly because of the opposition of the largest of all the socialist parties, the German Social Democratic Party, which said it would be a mistake to discuss concrete steps before the crisis comes. Um, what was happening in fact, and it's easier to see in, in, in when you look back, is that nationalism was also dividing the world, the international um, socialist and, and workers movement. And so you did get forces pushing for peace, you got forces pushing for war, and then you got I would call all those the sort of givens of the time, this was, this was the world of the time, but then you got actual choices which helped, I think, to limit the options before Europe, which helped to push it more down the road to war. I don't think war was still inevitable, but you can see certain key decisions which began to make it more likely that there would be a war. Um, the development of alliances. Now, these were defensive alliances, these were not offensive alliances, but increasingly they served to divide Europe up into camps. And so you've got Britain, realizing that it was very isolated in the world, doing what might have seemed unthinkable, and that was mending fences with its old enemies of Russia and France, and moving into a relationship with both of those. Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary from the end of 1906, always said that we have a completely free hand, but in fact, I don't think Britain did. Increasingly, it was identified with a particular set of friends, and increasingly, it worked with them, and increasingly, the expectations burnt up, built up. Um, correspondingly, Germany and Austria-Hungary drew much closer together and began to plan together, began to work together. And so you did get a visible dividing up of camps. And although both sets of alliance members said that they were only doing this in a defensive fashion, of course, what, what looks defensive from your side can look quite different from the other side. And so you began to get fears and apprehensions developing. I would also argue, and I mentioned this earlier, that the German decision to start a naval race with Britain was a very dangerous one and ultimately a self-defeating one. Um, what the Germans seem to have thought, and their thinking on this in, in, in some ways was rather muddled, was that if they were a great power, which they clearly were, they had to have what all other great powers had, and that was colonies. In those days, being a power meant having an empire, even though we know today that that isn't necessarily the mark of a great power. And if you wanted to have an empire, you had to have a navy. A very influential book by the American naval captain, Alfred Mahan, argued that great powers didn't get to be great powers without empires and, and the navies to protect them. I think what you also got were personal factors coming in, and I never discount personal factors. Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany was the grandson of Queen Victoria. He used to visit her in the summer at the Isle of Wight. He used to go with her to look at the great naval shipyards. He used to watch the great naval reviews. And I think he more or less said to himself, I want one of those when I grow up. Um, I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, for him, it was very, very important. And he also had um, a genius of someone in politics, Admiral Tirpitz, who made it possible for Wilhelm to get his navy. He was a tremendous lobbyist and tremendous, tremendous at the maneuverings that were necessary to get the naval bills through the Reichstag. And Tirpitz's theory, which was known as the risk theory, is that we will build a navy big enough not to be the equal of the British Navy, 
but big enough that the British Navy won't want to take us on because if they take us on, they will be so weakened that they will then be at the mercy of the other big navies in the world. In other words, said Tirpitz, by having a big and strong navy, we will force the British to be friends with us. And there was one fatal flaw in that reasoning. Um, the British decided they didn't want to be forced into a friendship with Germany, and so they chose friendship with France and Russia, and they matched the Germans ship for ship, and in the end, outbuilt them. And so you got a hardening of the alliances. You also got, every time there was a crisis, a tendency for the alliances to pull together. And you get a series of crises in Europe, which come with increasing frequency after about 1905. Um, there is a crisis over Morocco. There's the crisis between Britain and Russia over the, the, the unfortunate sinking of the trawler off Hull. There's a crisis over Bosnia in 1908. There's a further crisis over Morocco in 1911 basically over who should control Morocco, would it be Germany, would it be France. But with the alliance system, increasingly there's a tendency for the alliance partners to back rather than restrain their own alliance partners. Then in 1912 and 1913, two crises in the Balkans. And in each crisis, it's very noticeable that people talk of the prospect of war. What you also get, of course, is the growth of armaments. Increasingly, there is an arms race. Um, fed, I think, by the fears, fed by the crises. Again, those buying the armaments, those building the weapons are saying we're only doing it for defensive purposes. That's not how it looks from the other side. And what you also get, in, as in any arms race, you get a fear of being left behind or a temptation to use your military when it's at its strongest point. In 1914, the German High Command was saying, if we have to fight Russia, and we probably will, we have to fight them now. We can't fight them in 1917. By then, it will be too late. It's very much the same calculation that the Japanese made with the Americans in 1941. What you also got, of course, is an assumption among those doing the military planning that war could actually be decisive, that it would not end in stalemate, although I think they knew in their heart of hearts that stalemate was very likely. It was quite clear in all the small wars that were being fought that the defense was getting much stronger than the offense that it was very easy, once you dug in with good weapons, to defend a position against a much superior force. And wars such as the American Civil War, the South African War, the Russo-Turkish War, the wars in the Balkans, all showed that it was very, very costly now to attack well-defended positions and that the dangers of stalemate was very high. And I think what you got among the European military leaders was an unwillingness to accept the consequences of this. They'd all been trained in offensive warfare, Defensive warfare didn't really seem something that they wanted to do. How did they go to their political masters and say, look, we have a huge military, but we don't think we can do much except sit in our fortresses and wait for the others to attack? I mean, this did not seem like a reasonable option. And so really, like gamblers, I think they made plans that hoped that they would win, that one throw of the dice would win. And the German plan, of course, was the most magnificent of all, and it was meant to destroy the French military, and I think it was 40 days from the start. And any plan that is that precise is not a good plan, because as, as, as the great German military thinker um, von Clausewitz said, um, once the fighting starts, many things can go wrong. You get what he called was friction. And so you get a Europe in which these forces between peace and war, I think, are in tension. But I think you can see the options beginning to narrow before 1914. And what each successive crisis did was a couple of things. It left resentments behind. And so after the 1908 crisis over Bosnia, when the Russians felt that they'd been done in by Austria-Hungary, they felt they had an agreement with Austria-Hungary, and Austria-Hungary went ahead and grabbed Bosnia before the Russians could get what they wanted, 
which was the Straits by, by Istanbul, the Tsar wrote to his mother, I will never forgive Wilhelm for doing this. He has betrayed me badly. Next time he will not get away with it. And I think this was one of the dangerous sides of the crises. The other uh, paradoxically and equally dangerous side was that they got through them. And so in the summer of 1914, you got a sense that this is another crisis in the Balkans. And we've just had two bad ones there. There was talk of war, but it all got settled. And so I think, in a paradoxical way, the crises both left resentments a determination not to back down next time, but a sense that, come what may, we'll be okay. We've muddled through. And when the crisis first started with the assassination of the Archduke at Sarajevo, very few people took it all that seriously, except those in Vienna and Germany who had decided on the destruction of Serbia. And Austria-Hungary had decided that this time Serbia, which it was convinced, although the evidence was not yet complete and, and never, never was, was convinced that the Serbian government lay behind those who killed, the, the plotters who killed the Archduke and his wife in Sarajevo. This time Austria-Hungary said we're going to destroy Serbia because Serbia was for Austria-Hungary an existential threat. Serbia had dreams of building a huge South Slav state, but many of the South Slavs in the world were living inside Austria-Hungary. And so for Austria-Hungary, Serbia was a magnet and a temptation for its own South Slavs, and it could not afford to let them go, because if the whole southern tier of Austria-Hungary went, the rest would go as well. The Poles were already restless, the Czechs were restless, the Italians were restless, the Ruthenians were restless. What Austria-Hungary saw in Serbia was a threat to its very existence. And so this time Austria-Hungary decided to destroy Serbia, and at the beginning of July it got the famous blank check from the German government, who said this time we'll back you to the hilt even if it means a general war. So you do get, in those two capitals, a determination that this time there'll be a war come what may, whatever the consequences. But for many Europeans, this was not something they knew about or cared about. Even political leaders in other countries were preoccupied with other matters. The British, for most of July, were preoccupied with the Irish question. There was very real fear of civil war over Ireland. If you look at the letters, as I've done, some of you may have read um, the letters that the Prime Minister Asquith was writing to Venetia Stanley, a young woman with whom he was madly in love in an embarrassing sort of way. Um, in his letters, he doesn't mention the crisis in Europe until July 27th. When he talks about political matters, it's about Ireland and the fears that there might be a civil war. And so people went on holidays. So Edward Grey went off bird watching and fishing, which was his preferred way of spending holidays. And the one thing he didn't want to do was go to the continent. He didn't like foreigners at all. Um, luckily, that option was going to be taken away from him in the next few, <laughs> few days. Um, and so you've got a crisis developing, and a lot of people simply not paying attention. People went on holidays. A leading German journalist took his wife and family to Ostend in Belgium for their annual summer holidays on the 27th of July, uh, about a week before the war broke out because he felt there was no danger of a war breaking out. He thought there'd be the usual posturing, the usual arguments, and then there'd be a conference of ambassadors and it would all be over. And so, in that sense, I think, Europe possibly slipped into war because some people weren't noticing. But I think very conscious decisions were made, as they had been made all along. Policies had been chosen, decisions had been made, which helped to narrow the options for Europe when it came to this final crisis of 1914. And by the beginning of August, it really was too late, and the final moments, I think, when it could have been averted, where if Russia and Germany had been able to mobilize on one front only. The Russians had military plans which involved mobilizing on the huge front, which went all the way down from Germany to Austria-Hungary. And when the Tsar said to his military, can't we just mobilize against Austria-Hungary and restrict the war to a war between Austria-Hungary and Serbia with us coming in to support Serbia, the military said it can't be done. And the Tsar did not have the knowledge or the backbone or the character to question that. And the same thing happened in Germany. Wilhelm II, as Russia began its general mobilization, said 
to the younger von Moltke, who was a pale shadow of his uncle, the great von Moltke, said to General von Moltke the Younger, could we perhaps just mobilize against Russia since they're mobilizing against us and not uh, mobilize, and attack uh, mobilize and attack France? And von Moltke said it can't be done. And the Kaiser backed off and didn't push it any further. And so I think you got both active decisions and I think you got a failure of leadership at the very last moment. And so by the 4th of August, Europe was at war with the consequences we all know. And so I haven't given you an explanation, but I hope I've helped you to see some of the reasons why it got itself into a position where significant people in significant positions of power thought that war was a reasonable option. They shouldn't have done, but they did. Thank you.